0: Good morning, Happy Theo. Happy Monday to you. All. Good morning to everybody. Happy Good Monday. Good morning. Happy Monday. Not as exciting as Friday.
1: <laughs> no. But we hope you had a wonderful (laughs) weekend.
0: As we announced last Friday, in case you weren't here, we want to announce again this week in sections, and then also the next week over Thanksgiving, and then also in the final week of the class, we're going to be reading, as our extra reading, St. Athanasius on On the the Incarnation.
1: incarnation. Yeah, this is a really important book. In fact, um, we assigned the introduction that was written by a very little-known British author named C.S. Lewis, Has anybody heard of
0: C.S. Lewis before? (laughs) Read the introduction. (laughs) It could get you pumped for the book. And this is hard theological reading. So if you read C.S. Lewis, it'll help you get excited for it.
1: Yes, this is one of, uh, St. Athanasius was one of C.S. Lewis's favorite theologians. And if you are familiar with the work of Lewis, then when you read this, there will be a lot of things that will look a little bit familiar to you. Mm. Um, And the, the questions that Athanasius was wrestling with, I mean, they're, they're, timeless in the sense that they're really important for us now, but they were also timely, and they reflect a lot of the um, conflicts and questions and theological wrestling that was going on in his era as well.
0: Do you know how old he was when he wrote this?
1: You just looked it up. You got to tell me.
0: I did. He was like 20 years old. Like, so what, what are we doing with our lives?
1: Yeah, write those reaction <laughs> papers. No. <laughs> not um, writing a
0: world-changing theological book. That's not what I'm doing, but he was. Yeah. And in fact, when he was only 25 years old, he was part of one of the most important gatherings of Christians in church history called the Council of Nicaea, which was a council that met at a place called Nicaea, coincidentally. In the year 325. What was that council all about?
1: Well in the early days of the Christian church when Christians had problems, um, keep in mind things like social media didn't exist, if they had problems or or issues that they wanted to come to agreement on with one another or needed to come to agreement on with one another, um, they would either be called or call themselves to order. Um, and send leaders from all over the Christian world uh, to gather together to discern. And that would look like, sometimes it looked like fancy, high-minded things like reading in intense theological discussions, and sometimes it looked like very bitter arguments. Uh, oh, man. As Christians argued then <laughs> as they do uh, now. And um, this book is in part, part of that, one of those big conversations, one of those big discussions about um, uh, uh, one of the theological questions of the Christian life, which is, who is Jesus, and what is his nature? So if you think about it, in the first century, this very charismatic man came along, um, gathered groups of people, shocked people with his teachings, got in arguments with uh, the leaders of his society, did wondrous works like raising people from the dead and exercising demons and things like that and then was... You're talking
0: about Jesus, right? Yeah, yeah. Puts
1: to death. His followers claimed he was resurrected from the dead. But what does that, beyond that, like what is his his significance? How does what he accomplished, how does that change our lives today? And that's what Christians were wrestling with.
0: I'm reminded at the Council of Nicaea, just this idea like how hard it would be today if we tried to gather all Christian groups, at least even attempted this, like representatives from every Christian group in the same room to hash out the most serious problems. Like, I wonder how that would go. There's one story, I don't know, I I, I think it's debated whether it's true or not, but I choose to believe it as a true story, which is that there was a certain individual at this conference named Arius who is a very important opponent of a book like this in early Christianity. And there was another person who thought Arius' ideas were so bad so heretical that he actually went and punched Arius in the face at the conference, which would seem like things aren't going well if that happens. Do you know who that was who allegedly punched him in the face? None other than a certain Saint Nicholas. Yes, the Saint Nicholas of the Christmas tradition Happy punched holiday. a heretic in the face at this conference <laughs> at which these ideas were being debated about whether Jesus was human or divine or what he was.
1: There are a lot of like insider church history memes about that uh, if you're bored. Not in class, but outside of class. Take a look at that. Yeah. Um, yeah so this this fellow Arius and Athanasius, these these two um, ideological, I guess, opponent, opponents were locked in this argument about who Jesus is and what um, like what his life and death and resurrection mean for the Christian believer. You all are going to be reading on the incarnation, wherein Athanasius argues against Arius, and Arius argued that Jesus was a created. A creature. A creature, yes, uh, the, it, which means that Jesus was not pre-existent God. So Christians are arguing back and forth about what that means. Ari- or Athanasius comes back and says, no, Jesus, uh, it's important that Jesus was not created, that Jesus is fully divine and fully human. That might just sound familiar and like, oh, yes, we, we can all take that for granted now. But you are going to be reading one of the early articulations of why Why that is important? Why does it matter that Jesus is also, or is divine and human at the same time?
0: Mm -hmm. Because when I hear that question, I immediately think, okay, God is God. If God can do anything, who cares if Jesus is a creature? Who cares if he's from outer space? Like if this is what God wanted, God can just like, I don't know, just like work it out, God, like figure it out. But this was, no, it was right for the church to actually get this issue straight, to get it correct and to make a declaration. And so Athanasius represents what became orthodox with a lowercase o, correct christian theology and thinking on this all-important question
1: yeah i think one of the major takeaways from a book like uh on the incarnation is for me is whatever the big theological issue of the day is and and in our setting it's it's a little bit different than arius and athanasius but um this this struggle is all a part of a faithful christian life so if you're struggling and having arguments in many ways you're doing what the saints who've gone before you have done, totally. hopefully you'll do it with righteousness. Right. We don't, we don't uh, condone punching in the face. We're a Quaker school.
0: I'm glad someone else did it back then, <laughs> if that's... <laughs> I think, though, that reading a book like this, I mean, this book is intense. It's dense, but I think it gives you a model as a Christian for what it might be like to try to think seriously about an important issue. That it's not about slogans or just one-offs or, f- you know, Facebook and Instagram. But it's like you can really go, you can really go deep into this tradition. This is d- these are deep waters.
1: Absolutely. And it's directly related to the next line of the creed that we're going oh, to be talking Oh, we
0: are adding about. a phrase to the creed. Who was conceived by the Holy Spirit? You got that? Who was conceived by the Holy Spirit? So when we recite our creed in a moment, that's the phrase we're going to be adding together. Who was conceived by the Holy Spirit? That's right. Shall we introduce the speaker? So excited!
1: Yes, we are very excited. We have someone who's not on the teaching team um, officially for this class, but who is an excellent professor and theologian and author, Um, Dr. Abigail Favalli who is director of the William Penn Honors Program. And yeah,
0: she's an award-winning author. She won her dissertation, for which she got her PhD. Was, when it was published as a book, she won an award for it. I mean, you know, how many of us win awards for our writing? And she's also an, award wri- writing fic- uh, an award-winning an award fiction author as well. And she has a recent memoir that's very popular called Into the Deep, talking about highly her... Highly recommend. Highly recommended, talking about her Christian experience. Um, a fun fact about her.
1: Yes, she likes... Which we
0: asked her about.
1: <laughs> she likes... Scandinavian noir like detective story. Nordic
0: noir Scandinavian crime fiction anyone raise your hand are you into Scandinavian <laughs> a crime fiction It's
1: small but okay. growing You don't have to admit it you can
0: talk to her afterward about that shared passion yes. Will you join yes. us in reciting the creed up to where we are I believe, I believe in God the father almighty creator of heaven and earth I believe in Jesus Christ his only son our lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Join us in welcoming Dr. Abigail Favalli.
2: Hey there, I feel all pumped up coming through that curtain. So why is there a line in the creed about Christ's conception specifically? Why does that matter? Why can't we just you know, skip straight to the birth, to Christmas time, like Starbucks is doing? Well, we're not going to do that today. It is mid-November, it is not Christmas time, and I don't want you saying happy holidays to me. I don't want to see Christmas decorations. I don't want to hear the songs yet. Thank you. Thank you. My birthday was yesterday, and I was not born in Christmas time. So, it's not Christmas time today, people. Mary's still pregnant, okay, and we're going to talk about how she got that way and why that matters for us and our faith. Why does the conception of Christ matter? So the most detailed account of Christ's conception is found in Scripture, in the Gospel of Luke, in the New Testament, in chapter 1. Traditionally, this narrative is called the Annunciation, because an angel announces to a young Jewish girl named Mary that she will give birth to the Messiah, Most Christians around the world, so Catholics like myself, Eastern Orthodox folks, we celebrate the Annunciation as a special feast day in March, March 25th, which, if you do the math, is nine months before December 25th. So this moment of the Annunciation is a pivotal one in scripture and tradition, and there are many things that we can learn from it. But this morning we're gonna focus on three key questions That will give us three key insights. The first question What does the Annunciation tell us about Christ? The second question What does the Annunciation tell us about how God works in our lives? And third, what does the Annunciation tell us about how we should respond to God? But I want to begin first by reading the passage from Luke because the whole talk is going to be grounded on this this scene in Luke. It's not very long. Like many passages in scripture, it's a small but deep pool of water that you can swim down in forever. And we're barely gonna brush the bottom if we're lucky today. Um, If you happen to have a Bible and feel like following along, you can. You don't have to, because I'm gonna read it to you. Um, But it's Luke chapter one, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and pondered in her mind what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold... You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I have no husband? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your kinswoman, Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. And Mary said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord, Let it be unto me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So let's tackle the first question. What does this passage tell us about Christ? Christ is not an ordinary human being who was conceived in the ordinary kind of way, which I won't explain to you this morning. That's for another time. Uh, This passage establishes Christ's divine paternity multiple times right? He will be called the Son of the Most High. He will be holy, the Son of God. Well, Mary asks a really good question here. Uh, How can this be? How exactly is this going to work? I have no husband. I know not a man. And the angel responds to her that the Holy Spirit will come upon her, and the power of the Most High will overshadow her. There's a lot going on in these two lines first of all, I want to note that Gabriel here gives Mary a glimpse of the Trinity, one of the more explicit times that the Trinitarian nature of God is indicated in Scripture. We have the coming of Christ the Son, we have the Holy Spirit, and we have the Most High, we also call the Father. So this miraculous conception that is about to happen has the whole creative power of the Trinity behind it. There are also some interesting parallels going on with the creation narratives in Genesis. In a Christian reading of Genesis, you also have some echoes and hints of the Trinity. You have God the creator, and he is speaking his word through which he creates the world, and you have his spirit that is hovering over the waters. And it is this word of God that is spoken in Genesis, through whom he creates the world, that is becoming flesh now, in Mary, by the power of the Spirit. Speaking of the power of the Spirit, in Genesis 2, we have the narrative about the creation of the first human being, Adam. He's made from dirt, from the hummus of the soil. And he is animated, he's brought to life by the breath of God. Luke's gospel echoes this. God's breath, God's life-giving creative spirit is the engine of Christ's miraculous conception. Christ, then, is the new Adam. And that's a familiar idea, perhaps, if you're familiar with some of Paul's writings. He talks about how Christ is the new Adam. So that's an important interpretation that you see in scripture and tradition in some of the writings of the church fathers. That means that what we're witnessing here in the narrative of the Annunciation is not only the coming of the birth of Christ, but also the recreation or the rebirth of humankind. I want to make it clear, lest there be any confusion, that this conception is a miraculous conception. The paternal power at work, the divine power at work, is a spiritual rather than a bodily one. And this contrasts starkly with a lot of other myths about gods being born, such that you see in Greek and Roman mythology, if you're at all familiar with Greek and Roman mythology, you know, it's kind of a, oh, I don't know how to say this without saying something super offensive, but basically the gods regularly take human form and go down and have sex with human women, and often against the will of those women. So the Greek and Roman gods are a bit rapey, if you, um, if we're being honest, but that's not at all what's going on here. This is an entirely different kind of story, an entirely different kind of conception. And there are certain religions in the world today who even think that God the Father came down sort of like Zeus used to do when he saw a pretty girl, but that's not what's happening because what's happening here is a spiritual conception by the power of the Holy Spirit, So according to Luke, this conception will happen when the Holy Spirit comes upon Mary and the power of the Most High overshadows her. Luke is being very intentional about his language here, even though we might be confused about what's going on. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. This is the same wording that Luke uses in the book of Acts, where he describes Pentecost. And this is when the Holy Spirit comes upon and descends onto the disciples in the upper room after the resurrection. The Holy Spirit fills them with the power of God and enables them to preach and to prophesy the word in multiple languages. Christ's conception then is something similar but even more powerful. It's brought about by this same creative power that fills Mary so fully. She's not only able to preach the word of God, but she's actually able to conceive and eventually give birth to the word of God. But what about the word overshadow? There's something a bit ominous about that language, right? The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Like if someone came up to you and was like, hey, I'm going to overshadow you, (laughs) you know, you'd probably be a little nervous. Not sure what that means. But if we look back in the Old Testament, this is familiar language as well. In the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, chapter 40, God gives Moses detailed instructions about building a place for him, preparing a place for him, specifically a tabernacle, so that God can descend and be present among the Israelites. So Moses builds the tabernacle to these very exacting specifications. And the chapter, chapter 40 of Exodus, ends with these verses. And the cloud covered the tabernacle of witness, and the tabernacle was filled with the glory of god and moses was not able to enter into the tabernacle because the cloud overshadowed it and the tabernacle was filled with the glory of the lord in the greek version of the old testament the exact same word is used translated overshadowed into english that appears in luke in his account of the annunciation so just as God's glory and presence filled the tabernacle in the Old Covenant, so now in the advent of the New Covenant, God fills Mary with his presence and his glory and his grace. Mary is the new tabernacle. She's the ark of the New Covenant. So we have here a continuation, but also a deepening of God's presence among human beings. Instead of the cloud of God's presence, We have Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. Instead of a beautiful, costly tabernacle, we have Mary. The new tabernacle is a human being, a woman, not simply a beautiful and costly object, but an active participant in the redemptive work of humankind. Because after all, we've been focusing a lot on what God's doing here, on God's creative work, but God is not working solo. The other party in this conception is Mary. God certainly had the power to create a human nature for himself out of nothing, right? We've seen that power demonstrated in Genesis. But instead, he chose to take his human nature from humanity. Jesus is divine, yes, but he is also a human being. And his humanity comes to him like it does to the rest of us, from humanity. Jesus has a mother, and he receives his humanity from her, from Mary. He's truly human. He's one of us. So this is the first key insight of the Annunciation. Who is Christ? Christ is the God-man. Christ is fully divine and fully human. He is a human being, but he is also God. Your reading for the next couple of weeks, as you were just talking about earlier, is On the Incarnation by Saint Athanasius, which is an in-depth exploration of how Jesus can be both God and man, and also, more importantly, why God chose to save us in this way by uniting himself with our very nature and then offering that nature up as a sacrifice of love for our redemption. Jesus takes what is ours, this is Athanasius' wording, And he does so through Mary, preparing for himself a temple in her body. That's what Athanasius describes. So this idea of Mary being the new tabernacle or the new temple is one that appears frequently in church tradition and in the writings of the church fathers, including Athanasius. So Christ prepares for himself a temple in the body of Mary and makes himself known and dwells in it. This leads almost directly to our second question. How does God work in our lives. And our second insight, redemption is almost always God's initiative, but he does not do it without our cooperation. This is important. Redemption is always God's initiative, but he does not do it without our cooperation. The word conception is crucial here. The creed does not say Jesus was created by the Holy Spirit, It says conceived. And scripture, Luke, what I just read, also says that Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit. So conception is collaborative by its very nature. It's a cooperative act. The incarnation of Christ through which we are saved is certainly the work of God, but he does not do this without Mary's consent without her obedience and her active cooperation. And so it is with us. God does the saving, but he won't force us. His redemptive work in our lives also requires our assent and our cooperation. So I want to spend some time now digging into Mary's response, her yes, her assent. Because that will lead to the answer of our third question. How should we respond to God? So Luke, in his gospel, he crafts his narrative about Christ's conception in a particular way. By presenting the reader with a juxtaposition between Zechariah, who will be the father of John the Baptist, and Mary, the mother of Christ. Zachariah in the story is an elderly priest He's married to a woman named Elizabeth, and they are barren, so they haven't been able to have children, and they're also by now too old to have children. At least you would expect that to be the case. So the angel comes to him just like the angel comes to Mary, and he gives him surprising pregnancy-related news. Your wife Elizabeth, even in her advanced years, will conceive and bear a son. Zachariah is very disturbed by this, even though he actually happens to be in the temple when the angel appears to him. So you think, well, if you're like in the place where God usually comes to people, then maybe you shouldn't be that shocked if the angel of God comes and says something to you. But nonetheless, he's greatly troubled, he's very afraid, and that fear develops into overwhelming terror. That's how Luke describes it. And then, like Mary, he asks the angel a question. But the angel responds to Zechariah very differently than he responds to Mary. He admonishes him. He actually punishes him. He makes him mute, unable to speak. So Zechariah completely loses the power of speech until after his son is born. And it's unclear immediately when you read it why Zechariah is treated in this way while Mary isn't. Because it seems at first glance that they respond to the angel exactly the same. They're both a little freaked out when the angel shows up, which is usually what happens when angels show up in Scripture, so they're not like pretty white ladies with wings. They're really freaky, okay? They come with the power of God. They're divine messengers. So they're both afraid or greatly troubled. And then they both hear the news of the angel, respond with a question. So then why is it that Zechariah is punished but not Mary? Even their questions seem very similar when you first look at them. But there's a meaningful distinction in the tone and the content of each question. So first, let's take Zechariah. In the response to the improbable news that his barren and aged wife would bear a son, Zechariah says, how will I know that this is so? Now, in response to the impossible news that she, a virgin, would bear a son, Mary says, how can this be? How will I know, and how can this be? Zechariah responds to the unknown with terror, and he allows that fear to overwhelm him. So the angel appears, he's overwhelmed with terror, and upon hearing the angel's revelation that he will have a son, his fear quiets somewhat, but it quiets into suspicion. How will I know? He's turned toward himself, he's focused on the I. How will I know? Mary, in the face of the unknown, remains composed. She's greatly troubled at the angel's appearance, but then she, as the text says, she ponders what kind of greeting this might be. So her fear quiets not into suspicion, but into contemplation. So she also responds with a question to this divine revelation, but it's a question that's posed more in a spirit of wonder than suspicion. How can this be? Her question is outward-looking rather than inward-looking. She's facing toward the mystery that's been proclaimed to her, rather than herself. But Zechariah, in contrast, is standing at a distance and asking for proof. Mary expresses a desire to receive. In this case, to receive perhaps the greatest gift ever offered by God to a human being the gift of becoming the mother of God in the flesh. And she goes on to give her full assent. She welcomes what has been revealed. Behold, the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. I also want to point out, too, that there's a lot more at stake for Mary in this. So the news that Zechariah has been given is completely good. He's married, he hasn't been able to have a child, and now he will be able to have a child. But no one's going to be angry at him for having a child. No one's going to be disturbed by that. He's also a priest. He's a man of status and privilege. Mary is a young girl who's unmarried. And being pregnant in her state of life actually puts her in a very vulnerable position. But yet she responds with more openness and receptivity than Zachariah. Even though saying yes, her saying yes, puts her more at risk, where there isn't really any risk here for Zachariah. These contrasts between Zachariah and Mary in the first chapter of Luke, they reveal two disparate spiritual paths. Zachariah, I think, reflects very much the spirit of our age. We live in an age of doubt, of skepticism, An age that responds to the question of God with a desire to capture God in the lasso of our knowledge, to wedge him under a microscope, to make him a a knowable and thus an ownable item. But Mary provides a different model. It's not a model, and I want to make this very clear, where one does not ask questions or confront the unknown or feel perplexed and confused or sometimes afraid. Mary experiences and expresses all of these things. But Mary asks her question in a different kind of spirit, in a spirit of wonder. She's not defensive, crossing her arms and asking God to wheel through the room like a magician and unmask his mystery once and for all. Instead, her confusion in the face of the unknown is an opportunity, and she sees it as an opportunity to venture toward God, to enter more deeply into his mystery. So this is the third insight. The essence of the Christian life is to be like Mary in this moment of the Annunciation, to hear the words of divine revelation, the words of the gospel, and to receive them in a spirit of wonder, even if we have questions, even if we're unsure and confused. The essence of the Christian life is to give God our yes. Now saying yes to God is no simple matter. This summer I got to go to Israel for the first time, which was really amazing. And one of the first places we went was Nazareth, which is this village that's kind of tucked into the hills around in Galilee. And I have a little confession to make. I'm something of an Annunciation junkie. I love the narrative of the Annunciation. I have this big painting of Gabriel and Mary in my office. I even have these words tattooed on my arm, fiat mici, which in Latin means be it done unto me. It's the first part of the response that Mary gives to the angel. Fiat mihi, secundum verbum tuum be it done unto me according to thy word. So you can imagine what it would be like for this little Catholic girl to go to Nazareth and actually go to the Basilica of the Annunciation because there's this amazing church that's been built over the site of Mary's childhood home, which is kind of this small cave-like grotto where the Annunciation is said to have taken place. And there, and there I was able to pray and even to kind of touch the stone it was an amazing experience to be able to, to see and to smell and to touch the place where this most likely happened. So after I came home from Israel, I had some surprising news, not from an angel, but from a urine test, and, uh, which announced that I was pregnant. And this was, a very, <laughs> this was very much a surprise for me. Um, Not in the same way that it was a surprise for Mary, let's just say. I do have a husband. (laughs) But nonetheless, without going into details, I will say it was an improbable kind of pregnancy. It was unlikely that it would have happened. And so it was this surprise. But it was a surprise that at first really threw me off. I was afraid and anxious. I didn't feel ready. I already have three other kids. I thought, this isn't the good time. You know, I'm not on sabbatical, whatever. You know, I just, all these thoughts started going through my head. I can't have another baby right now. I can't have another baby right now. And at that point, the words that I have on my arm started to sort of mock me and taunt me, right? Mary's response to this. And here I am in a much better situation than Mary was, but yet it was harder for me to say yes. But what changed it for me was when I realized that um, the due date would be right around March 25th which is the Feast of the Annunciation, right? And then it just transformed. It seemed like a gift, right? I had just been in the Holy Land where the Annunciation took place. I have a surprise pregnancy. Baby's due on the Annunciation. Like, oh my gosh, Can knew, imagine? It just seemed so, it was so obvious that this was a gift from God. And it truly was. And so I said yes. In that moment, I was able to say yes and accept this and give my assent. But then there was a second message that came about two months later. And this was in a doctor's office. I was having an ultrasound. And this time, the message came from utter silence and stillness. Because I could see on the screen the tiny body of the little baby. But there was no kind of flashing movement of the heart. Because normally, in an ultrasound, when you can see a heartbeat, it's like these tiny little windows opening and closing. And there was nothing like that. There was just complete stillness, complete silence. But in that complete silence, there was the most deafening kind of message. And that was that the baby had died. My Holy Land baby, my enunciation baby, had died. And so then I was, of course, I was completely devastated, and also confused. Like, was it just a sick joke? You know, that I had had this kind of amazing sort of enunciation-like experience, only to have the baby die two months later. That's when I began to enter into the dark side of Mary's yes. I started to feel tortured by these words that I'd carved on my arm. Be it done unto me according to thy word. But what about when the yes seems impossible to say? When it catches in your throat, it just kind of chokes you. What about when you are asked to say yes, not to new life and abundance, but to grief and to suffering and death? But that is the dark side of Mary's yes. <clears throat> when Mary gave her assent to God, she was saying yes to a future that included standing under a cross and watching her only son die slowly and painfully. That, too, is part of Mary's yes. And that child who died, she was a gift. Even though I only had her in my life for two months. And she taught me more about the depth of Mary's ascent than anything else ever has. The story of the Annunciation is a microcosm of the Christian life. At some point in our lives, we hear the message of Christ's coming, of his salvation, and we are given the chance to respond, to give our yes, to have Christ come to life within us, in our own lives. Or we have the choice to walk away and be barren. I knew this. I believed this already, right? I was into the Annunciation already. But what I didn't fully understand is that in this moment, Mary is saying yes, to Christ's birth, but she's also saying yes to his suffering and death. She will see her son's resurrected and glorified body, but first she will see that body bleeding and lifeless and absolutely still, and she will help bury that body in a tomb. Mary's yes and our yes, it's an ascent to new life, and redemption, but it is a redemption that will only come through the cross. And that's the promise of Christianity. It's a beautiful message, it's a good message, it's a hard message. The promise of Christianity is not a life without suffering, but it is a life in which your suffering can be transfigured by the grace of God to become an instrument of your own redemption. There will be times when saying yes to God seems easy and effortless, right? When God is saying, here, have a new job, you know, or here, have a great boyfriend, whatever. Here, have a good burger. But there will also be times when saying yes to God seems impossible. But in those moments, If you open yourself, like Mary did, to receive the grace of God, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and you will hear yourself able to say somehow, behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord, be it done unto me according to thy word. Amen.
1: Thank you, Dr. Cavalli.